Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. What we've got here is failure to communicate. And it get hot. I got a lot of, I got hairy legs that turn, that, 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 that turn uh, uh, um, blonde in the sun. And the kids used to come up and reach in the pool and rub my leg down so it was straight and then watch the hair come back up again. They look at it. So I learned about roaches. I learned about kids jumping on my lap. With your host, Mike Paul. And I've loved kids jumping on my lap. Hey guys, welcome back to the Mike Paul cast. I am your host, Mike Paul. If this is your first time joining us, thank you for tuning in. Um, I highly recommend you go back and look at some of our previous episodes if this is your first time tuning in over here. Um, Today we got a great episode for you. Uh, But first, I've been meaning to ask. Um, (laughs) Kind of the white elephant in the room. What do you guys think of my intro? Because I made up a, uh, a couple of different ones. And if you've been listening since episode one, it was completely different on episode one. I took an excerpt from a 1940s uh, pro-capitalism cartoon called Make Mine Freedom that I'm a huge fan of. If you've never seen it, pause right here, head over to YouTube. It's about 10 minutes long. Watch it. Timeless gold. Um, So I took an excerpt out of that, and I really liked it. But I did the Joe Biden hairy legs one uh, just to see. You know, it was really funny. I thought so. But I thought it might be a little too far. But, um... Jason Stapleton, who was my guest on episode number two, he was kind enough to take our interview from my podcast and post it on his feed on Wealth, Power, and Influence, which was huge. I'm so grateful. That was a uh, extremely just selfless and kind act that he did for me. Um, so that brought a lot of traffic over here, and I'm sure a lot of you guys listen to Jason's show. I got a big uptick in downloads the, the minute he did that. <laughs> but I was in a bit of a hurry when I was uh, editing the audio file for him, and I just grabbed that one, and I was like, hey, what the hell? If Jason doesn't like it, he can edit it out. Well, he ran with it, and he played it for his audience, which is much larger than mine, and uh, I thought it sounded kind of good. So I was like, you know, no one complained. <laughs> so um, I'd like you guys to give me your feedback. If you like that intro... I'm trying to boycott going on Facebook and Twitter. Um, I am not fans of those platforms. I think they are uh, everything I despise about authoritarianism. Um, so I would like for you guys to vote on iTunes. If just go to my ratings, leave me a review. I'm not saying go give me a five-star review if you don't feel that way. Leave whatever review you want. Um, but mention the intro and give me a thumbs up if you like it, give me a compliment, whatever you think, or tell me I should change it. I'm just kind of curious how, how you guys are taking it. Cause I, I thought it might be a little edgy to put that out there. Um, but, uh, I don't know. I think it's pretty funny. 
So let me know what you think. Head over to iTunes and leave me a review and give me your honest input on the show. Also, if you have any guests you would like to recommend, please um, send them my way. Um, you can also email me at themikepaulcast at gmail.com. Um, and like I said, I'm trying to boycott Twitter and Facebook. I, I you know, They can't cancel me if I never go on their platforms in the first place. So I'm here to talk about topics that, you know, they're not very popular with the point of view of uh, Silicon Valley and big tech. So why even go on there in the first place? Just to build an audience and a bunch of time and get people following me over there just to get cut off if uh, we say something that doesn't uh, conform to the, uh, the religion of the radical left. So in the show notes, you will see I've added a link where you guys can send uh, tips. So if you guys want to kick me a buck, five bucks, ten bucks, ten grand, you know, whatever you feel generous enough to uh, send my way, um, it'll help me not only advertise to help grow the audience, which will uh, help me attract larger uh, or higher profile name guests. Um, You know, we've had quite a few big names already. I've been really happy with the amount of people that have been willing to give me their time. Um, but it would be huge to help me with that. Upgrading my equipment. Um, I'm in desperate need of a new computer, <laughs> things like that, uh, that are, uh, down the road. I'm looking to buy, I'm just working now, but I would like to spend a little bit more money on equipment and advertising just to help grow the show and help spread this message. If you guys are listening this far into my show, you definitely are aligned with the Liberty movement and you would like to. If you'd like to help out, uh, help grow the show, please uh, let me know what you think. Just click the notes in the or the link in the show notes and uh, kick whatever you feel is necessary. So today we have a uh, very good show for you. I have someone that I've been listening to for a long time. He is Gene Epstein. Now, Gene was the former chief economist for the New York Stock Exchange. He recently retired from a long tenure as the economics editor at Barron's Magazine, and he currently hosts the popular Soho Forum, a live debate series in New York City. Gene's a very interesting guy. He's a 76-year-old man. Well, just about. He's, he'll cover that. He's 75, turning 76 uh, in a couple days. Um, he was raised by a mother who was a card-carrying communist. He was a bleeding heart socialist professor through his 20s, uh, but he started reading, reading Murray Rothbard in his 20s, and now he is a free market capitalist. So I really picked his brain about a lot of different topics, and that's where I would really like to have you guys share this with a, uh, a Bernie Sanders supporter friend of yours, uh, somebody who is really sold on the idea of democratic socialism uh, Gene Epstein is a prime example of how you can go from one radical, completely misguided uh, ideology that's extremely dangerous to humanity to the truth, which is where he is now and where he's been for the last 55 years. Um, I view socialism as a cancer on the planet. Uh, every time you put it out, it reappears somewhere else, and it, it, it's the absolute blood and just carnage it leaves in its wake is completely devastating and horrific 
and it needs to be nipped in the bud anytime it pops up. Um, so it would be extremely valuable for you to just send this to any one of your Bernie Sanders supporty friends and try to get through to them. I mean, Gene is an example that people can change. So he gives his take on it, and uh, it gives me hope to believe that others can have their mind changed. Uh, this episode, I'm also joined by my brother, Nick Paul, once again, who was on the Scott Horton interview. Um, I'm really glad to have his uh, company once again. Nick's very informed in economics, much like he was in foreign policy. So without further ado, please welcome my guest, Gene Epstein. Gene, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to the Mike Paulcast. I really appreciate you coming in today. Well, uh, happy to be here, and congratulations on the launch of the Mike Paulcast. Uh, I'm sure you have uh, greatness ahead of you. Thank you very much. So my first question for you, um, only because I need to follow up with our episode uh, that came out last, which was with uh, mm-hmm. the great Scott Horton. Yeah. Um, we had covered during that conversation the uh, the cancellation of his debate that was supposed to happen between him and Bill Crystal oh, yeah. pre-COVID. Well, yeah, yeah. Is Postpone. there... Go ahead, yes. Oh, sorry. Is there any um, talk of uh, rescheduling that event? Um, just because the people listening were probably fresh off that episode, and uh, we we were hoping to find out more about that. Well, uh, Mike, uh, first of all, uh, you know, I like to say, as director of the debate series, the Soho Forum, that we never canceled that debate; we only postponed it. Oh, and uh, okay. first of all. And uh, second, uh, you know, every day I wake up in the morning asking myself, what am I going to do to further uh, the scheduling of that debate at some point? And uh, I made efforts. uh, In particular, for example, uh, I was approached by, um, I'm forgetting his name, the guy who runs Young Americans for Liberty out of Dallas. There was an event down, supposed to happen down there in August. And... uh, uh, down in uh, Dallas or Austin. And uh, I believe Scott, I was virtually certain Scott would have been willing to do uh, the debate down there, especially since Scott lives in Austin. And uh, I we approached Bill Crystal, uh, the opponent. Uh, this has been a debate on foreign policy, as you know. And uh, Bill is in his early 60s. And uh, he said uh, that he didn't want to take the risk of going down there. So we tried that way. And... Uh, that failed. And in fact, of course, the that Dallas event got canceled anyway in the end. Uh, uh, and so uh, we're still trying. Uh, I might be going down to Florida early next year, almost definitely will be going down to Florida to do a physical debate. Uh, uh, but of course, the, the short answer was still hoping. But also, I, I we do online debates now. We do debates by Zoom. Uh, we have we've done nine of them, um, and we're doing a tenth and eleventh. Uh, one in December, another in January. I'd hate for that uh, for for the Scott Horton uh, Bill Crystal debate to be done uh, uh, by Zoom. Uh, there's some kind of sentimental attachment I, I place on on physical events, on the real uh, live confrontation between two interesting debates. Sure. So I'm committed to put that in a physical space. I guess. And so now I'm hopeful that uh, now that Biden's going to be in charge, that uh, he and the other Democrats are going to find excuses to lift the lockdowns. Uh, So I have this optimistic view that uh, we might uh, be able to have it uh, early next year uh, 
and uh, in a physical space, hopefully in New York. And so that's the best I can say. I feel terrible about it having been canceled. Uh, we sold uh, for a, a hall that we rented with 800 seats. This would have this would have been downtown at the New School. Our normal auditorium that we have our used to have our events in Subculture Theater had a capacity of a little over 200. This one had a capacity of 800. We had already sold 660 seats, and we barely even promoted it. So uh, we were anticipating a sellout crowd, and uh, we hope to do that again. I've been working on different angles. I learned, for example, that Saturday Night Live in New York City has actually had events in front of an audience because they, quote unquote, pay the audience as though they're working for the show. So mm. maybe we'll find <laughs> that loophole. So I'm, I'm determined uh, that, uh, that, that early next year we'll have it one way or the other. Uh, one way or the other, I mean in a physical space. So that's my long-winded <clears throat> for the fact that uh, we had to postpone it and uh, that we couldn't have it in Dallas, but I'm still working on it. Okay, great. That was good to yeah, hear. Sure, um, sure. So moving on, um, sure. just, just to give a little background about Nick and myself, um, yeah. neither one of us have ever taken a college class on economics. Yeah. Um, we are 100% self-educated and self-taught and whatever knowledge we, we currently have on that. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's, it's by listening to people like you or any other number of podcasts that we listen yeah. to, uh, audio books, uh, you know, uh, physical hard copy books, just because we're generally interested in the topic. So we're, we're not uh, economic majors in any way, shape or form on paper, but we're fascinated with the topic and we're always eager to learn more. Can you explain, because um, I, I debate a lot of my friends who went to college for economics and they have a, a Keynesian view of economics and, and I get in yeah. with them all the time because we come from the Austrian school of thought. Can, can you explain a little bit of, of the differences between Austrian and uh, Keynesian views on economics? Sure. Uh, well, as a matter of fact, let me tell you that uh, uh, I didn't take an economics course in undergraduate school either. Uh, and... Uh, I, uh, I did uh, do graduate work in economics. I was teaching it uh, and uh, I uh, got converted to Austrian economics uh, while I was teaching it. I picked up uh, Man, Economy and State by Martin Rothbard and then read uh, voraciously in the field. And uh, so I think that in a way it might be an advantage for you guys that you didn't get your minds completely polluted by uh, by mainstream economics, but of course you have to know a little bit about it in order to understand its weaknesses. Uh, but uh, to answer your question most uh, directly, uh, there are uh, a few, uh, I guess, key differences between mainstream Keynesian economics and Western economics that are crucial. Uh, let me ma mention uh, one or two. Uh, the first is that uh, uh, we Austrians see the market not as in a state of an equilibrium, uh, state of equilibrium where you draw uh, you draw supply and demand curves, or you draw the, uh, the, uh, the 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 cost curve for a firm, and you show where it is in a state of a quote unquote perfect competition. Uh, uh, we believe we we think of the market as a process where competition is always imperfect, where information is always uh, uh, gathered, catch as catch can, uh, where knowledge of where uh, uh, supply and demand are going is always something that entrepreneurs have to 
keep up with. In other words, another way of putting it, as we think of markets as entrepreneurially driven, always in a state of sort of disequilibrium, always in a state of making mistakes and picking up on what happened, what might happen next. And uh, the, the key point uh, in that case then is that we regard the, the old concept of perfect competition as being a state in the never-never land where it is assumed that everyone knows uh, what is going to happen next. Everyone knows what information uh, is available that's relevant to each market, and this and the mar and the and the markets are in a state of, so to speak, rest, a state of equilibrium. But uh, in from the Austrian standpoint, uh, we are seeking a knowledge. A knowledge is always imperfect, and therefore. Uh, the very idea of perfect competition is a complete misnomer. Uh, so we conceive of it that way, and that has implications uh, for government uh, intervention, because we point out that if you centralize in information, uh, then the centralized centralization of information will mean that your information is quite scanty, because uh, information is always known on a decentralized basis. Uh, competitors are always coming into the market uh, and, and causing upheavals, causing, uh, in, uh, in the words of Joseph Schumpeter, creative destruction. Uh, for example, uh, you know, 25 years ago, uh, where you guys were single digits and barely knew much about what was going on in the book selling world, the book selling world was dominated by the large companies like Barnes and Noble and Walden's big box bookstores. And now those stores are completely, uh, basically uh, in trouble, much weakened by the advent of Amazon. And so uh, somebody came along in the version, in the, in the guise of Jeff Bezos, and Jeff Bezos just realized that distribution of books and indeed distribution of so many other things can be done uh, by mail, uh, by advertising online. And now Amazon, of course, has made him the richest man in the world, uh, even though he's divorced. And uh, so uh, that uh, is, of course, the main one of the main stories of the past 25 years that perfect competition would have no room for. So it's completely out of touch. The, the, the mainstream view of, of, of particular markets completely out of touch with reality. In terms of Keynesianism, I guess a key point to uh, a key point of difference between the Austrians and uh, the Keynesians is that the Keynesians assume as a matter of course that the money supply, that money in general must be in the charge of the government. They don't, uh, they don't question that for a moment. It's simply an assumption uh, that uh, government run central banks must run the money supply. Austrians open up that issue altogether uh, and they have key insights about how money came into being, key insights about how markets properly uh, determine the money supply. And uh, that's uh, especially liberating because then we begin to ask what causes business cycles. And then we begin to realize that recession and boom and bust is uh, essentially caused by government uh, intervention in uh, in uh, the money markets. So, I mean, uh, that's, uh, that's, that's two key differences. And of course we could elaborate 
further on what are the implications of those differences. Okay. Um, I'm currently listening to an audio book um, yeah. called How Innovation Works by Matt Ridley. I'm not oh, sure yes. if you're familiar with that one. So I heard oh, him yeah. talk. Okay. Yeah, go ahead, yes. Um, I heard him talk about it on the Naval Ravikant podcast, and that's right. Yeah. I, I uh, bought it afterwards. But he gave a, a really good um, example. He said, like in Britain, I forgot what the number he gave, like millions of people that get lunch at 12 o'clock at the same time, and how there's just a perfect amount of chicken, fish, vegetables at all these restaurants with minimal waste. And he said, whoever the head of the Department of Food Supplies for the lunch hour of, uh, you know, in Britain would be that, you know, they're just so good at their job. But in reality, there is no one person doing that. It's the market working and, and finding a way to be efficient. Um, mm -hmm. And that was something that that really it was, it was one of the best uh, kind of uh, examples I saw of how the market does solve all the problems that government tries to do yes uh, well uh first of all uh how innovation works i actually listened to it uh, read by matt woodley ridley mm -hmm. <laughs> on uh, uh on audible uh it is a terrific book and uh, i i would say that while that's a an excellent insight that you glean from it uh, i i think that the insights in that book are indeed very austrian and uh, and even go way beyond what you have uh, uh, articulated. It's very possible for a mainstream economist to appreciate the point that 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 the price mechanism, uh, supply and demand, uh, will uh, allocate on a sort of decentralized basis uh, the, uh, uh, the the food supply uh, to the people. But uh, but a key point is that uh, it's in a constant state of flux. Uh, there's, there's constantly changing information. And uh, in particular, for example, when the government imposed the lockdowns, uh, then distribution of the food supply changed. Then, then suddenly an awful lot of business switched to Amazon and Amazon had to take advantage of that. Uh, the, uh, the, the fewer people went to the uh, grocery stores. And so the flexibility of the market uh, in response to change uh, is also very key. And, uh, and of course, uh, Jeff Bezos uh, believes that you can't, I return to the Jeff Bezos example, it's not the only one I wanna put out, but it's relevant here, uh, that, uh, that Jeff Bezos would, uh, has, has said that, that he's not gonna really be a merchant to the world unless he, he, he also distributes food via Amazon and clothing. And so that's changing the landscape all the time, and that's what innovation does. But uh, but uh, since you mentioned uh, how innovation works, I think a uh, a key understanding uh, that I think maybe mainstream could sort of appreciate, but uh, but really Austrians appreciate uh, even better is that the market makes it possible uh, for innovation to occur, and that. Uh, the key to uh, what we call economic growth is innovation. Uh, and uh, that's, that, that, that sounds like a statement that's fairly tame, but when, when you think about it, I'm waving my arm here because my leg keeps going off because I'm, <laughs> I, I'm, it's, a, it's a screensaver office. But anyway, uh, that, uh, that innovation is the key, although, you'll hear a lot of mainstream supply siders talk about, oh, the importance of investment. Well, yeah, investment matters, but 
And of course, you're not going to get innovation unless you have investment. But then again, you know, obviously you need investable funds in order to finance innovation. But uh, when you think of a simple mental experiment, uh, imagine that it's uh, 1750, the year 1750 in the U.S., uh, a lot of things have not yet been invented uh, or, in, or put into common use. We have slow moving sailing boats. We have uh, Franklin stoves. We don't have engines. We don't have airplanes. Uh, we don't have all of the innovations that, that, that came out post 1750. But then now assume that investment is very robust. People keep investing in the capital stock that they know about, the kind of homes that people build with, with fireplaces without, uh, without uh, you know, furnaces, the kind of ships that people build with, with sailing, uh, with sail, sailing boats. Uh, all of that technology that was known in 1750, and we have plenty of investment. But there would have been no real economic progress. Uh, uh, the, uh, the no uh, no economic progress on the farm uh, to speak of. All of the machinery, all of the innovations that made it possible to to improve crop yields would not have come out. And so, uh, uh, while it might be rather tame for me to say that innovation is the driving force of uh, of economic growth, uh, it becomes hopefully more of a reality to recognize that um, that it's not so much investment. Because, by the way, if somebody has an innovative idea, he's going to be motivated to find investable funds, motivated to try to put uh, put uh, some money together in order to invest in that innovation. And so uh, that is key to the free market. And then also, of course, when you centralize that part of it, uh, when government dominates R&D or when government dominates the economy generally, then all the dispersed bits of knowledge that, for example, came from Jeff Bezos or came from Sam Walton, who <clears throat> built Walmart, who had the idea of building immense uh, um, um, multi-purpose stores, uh, all the, the the inventors of the steam engine, all of those people who came from all walks of life, uh, those people would have to get their ideas through the very narrow hole of bureaucratic government and economic progress would basically grind to a halt. And so again, I, 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 the only cutting edge here is that a mainstream supply side would talk about the importance of investment. And while investment matters in the sense that it's, it's money raised to finance innovation, it's really the whole story uh, begins and ends uh, with the innovation that uh, can only come from the free market. And that's a key so, point that, that Matt Ridley makes with his vivid stories. Yeah. So, Gene, not to change gears too sharply here, well, but I wanted. <laughs> All right, let's do it. Yeah. So, I wanted to get your opinion on what's going on uh, right now in the present moment, because one oh. thing that I like about listening to you, yeah. uh, you know, I follow guys like Peter Schiff and David Stockman and Bob Murphy, yeah. and you know, while all those guys are very insightful and I enjoy it, it's nice to get some, some, you don't want to get too trapped in an echo chamber. You want to get different opinions. And while you're also of the Austrian school, you have a much more optimistic view of what's happening of, of the future. You think you talk about the resilience of the free market and the spirit of entrepreneurship and how we have so much more capacity for productivity now that we're never going to see something like the great depression again, because we just have so much more ca capacity to produce. So I'm going to tell you how I kind of understand this. And then yeah. you tell me, you know, what gaps I need to fill in or what I might be misunderstanding. So mm -hmm. 
Uh, I'm going to assume that whoever whoever is listening to this is already somewhat familiar with the Austrian business cycle theory. Uh, so we have the, let's start in 2008, we have the financial crisis and all of these loans go bad. The Federal Reserve steps in and they cut interest rates to 0%, which is very radical for the time. And then they had all of these bailouts for these bad mortgages. And then they left interest rates at 0% until about, I think it was 2015 or 16. So longer than they've ever left them at zero before, or I think the first time they ever went to zero, I might be wrong about that. Mm-hmm. So they cut them down. We have this gradual increase where they're hiking interest rates like a quarter percent every, you know, twice a year. And they get up to about 2%. COVID-19 happens. Immediately, they, they send bailouts overnight. They cut interest rates to 0%. They move the reserve rate for banks to 0% from 10%. So it's not even really fractional reserve banking anymore. It's like 0% <laughs> banking. And then we have all of this central bank activity where they, and I forgot, I left out in 2008, they had the quantitative easing program where they're also buying all these assets to provide solvency for all these financial institutions. Mm-hmm. So now we have this, this unprecedented uh, move by central banks pretty much around the world. And the Fed hasn't gone below zero like a lot of foreign central banks, but they're at zero and there's no plans to hike in sight. And they've basically, I don't know what the balance sheet looks like right now, but they essentially bought the equivalent of like all three rounds of quantitative easing over the span of like six months. So mm-hmm. we've never seen central bank uh, activity this aggressive before. It's really unprecedented. And to the Austrians, they see this and they think, okay, if, if you know, artificially low rates and, and uh, propping up like stocks and bonds through asset purchasing causes this bust, we look at what's happening right now, and it should only be a matter of time before the air comes out of these bubbles. All of the money created uh, should at some point come out of these, these financial instruments and get into the real economy. And that's when a lot of Austrians say that we're going to see these rising commodities and you know possibly stagflation. So you do have this more optimistic view of the future. So mm-hmm. how, do you, how do you reconcile like, how aggressive and the scale of the central bank activity how do you reconcile that with your optimism for the free market and, you know, how you think we can dig ourselves out of this? Okay. <laughs> well, um, to call me optimistic uh, would uh, only be uh, true if you compare me uh, with uh, Peter Schiff and David Stockman. Uh, and, uh, but I'll, uh, I'll accept the label, uh, but uh, compared to uh, the real potential of the free market, I'm pretty pessimistic. Uh, I'll clarify that in a moment. But again, let me uh, also point out that if you're going to forecast and uh, do the very uh, difficult uh, job of trying to foresee what's going to happen over the next year, next two years, next three years, to the U.S. economy, it's very important to 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 do an agonizing reflection on what you've been forecasting, to, to constantly have enough humility to do mid-course corrections and see, well, did you miss something? Uh, because uh, events unfold and you want to see how you've been doing. Uh, and I, I mentioned that only because uh, I would say to both Peter Schiff and David Stockman, what I told David, by the way, when I appeared with him on the Tom Woods show, uh, that uh, that he, and as a matter of fact, and Peter Schiff, have been forecasting a bust every year since the year 2012. 
every year since the year 2012. You can look that up. The economy is going to go to hell in 2012 and 2013 and 2014, year after year after year. Now, I then get into arguments with this sort of extreme view, <laughs> the, the, uh, the extreme uh, wing of the Austrians who claim, uh, and to some degree David makes that claim, that there really was no economic growth, no economic progress from 2012 to 2019. Now, I think that's absurd. There was economic progress, there was growth, uh, there was a general lifting of living standards and, uh, and, and any metric that tries to show otherwise is very, very flawed. David Stockman has tried to show that. Uh, but uh, so setting that aside, I only mean that if I had been forecasting a bust every year from 2012 to 2019 and been wrong every year, I might begin to reflect on why I've been wrong. What else is going on? Uh, I might even take a vacation from forecasting. I suggest that to both Peter Schiff and David Stockman. Uh, take a vacation for a while and do an agonizing reappraisal because you've been a stopped clock. You know, the stopped clock is right twice a day, but uh, it's, it's wrong the rest of the time. Eventually, they're going to be right. And of course, they were right in the year 20, uh, 2008. So then I want to mention then my own gaffe. I knew... I knew in 04 and 05 and 06 that there was a housing bubble. I knew that the housing bubble had burst basically in 06. And then looking into 07, however, uh, I noticed that, uh, that the economy was still growing, even though the housing market was collapsing. And so I had the impression that it would not bring a recession because it looked as though uh, the rest of the economy could withstand the shock of the collapse in the housing market. I proved dreadfully wrong. And so I, I owned up to my own gaffe in looking at the future. And uh, so you should take my own forecast I, uh, with a grain of salt, so to speak. You should recognize that maybe I'm a little bit too optimistic, but at least I want to point out that, that, that the resilience of something else going on in the economy is, some, is, is an aspect of the economy that David and Peter uh, ignore. All, of, all that you've mentioned is essentially correct. But the question is, why did the economy uh, grow for, for, for seven, eight years, even given all that? Uh, and uh, again, I guess if you want to ask me, uh, uh, or do you want to express doubts about that particular track record that in 2019, uh, incomes were at a record high, the economy in terms of output was at a record high in 2019. Now I know Bob Murphy is a different case. Uh, Bob doesn't make as uh, flamboyant forecasts as Peter Schiff and David Stockman. I mentioned those guys, not because I want to, I want to just wreck their reputation, their comrades, but the point is that if you keep putting this information out, keep recommending as David Stockman did in 2012, uh, that, that people not buy the stock market. David was using his vast fortune to just buy treasuries and making very little money from it. Then, then you're responsible for the kind of advice you give to people and, and how they act on it. So you might want to reflect on how you've been doing. 
So uh, I'm not personalizing this. I'm only trying to talk about the very, very delicate art of forecasting. Now, speaking to uh, maybe more directly to the question you raise, I, I also want to correct one, I guess, one other point, which is to say that uh, that as uh, that I'm I'm reasonably certain that the, that there will be a major financial crisis somewhere about ten years out. That, uh, that the charmed life that the US economy has been leading is likely to come to an end. That, that when, when David Stockman said in his discussions with me uh, when we were on the Tom Woods show, that, that unless the economy busts in the next year or two, then, then, then how can our Austrian insights be valid at all? Well, uh, what you mentioned in the, you know, the question you put to me is valid, is relevant. Uh, the power of entrepreneurship, uh, the uh, the 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 resiliency of the U.S. economy, the fact that the U.S. economy consists of government interference, government uh, uh, government meddling, uh, and and um, and major busts as did occur in 07 and 08, and yet has very strong entrepreneurial strength. A lot of economic progress was made uh, over the last eight, nine years. Uh, and uh, so uh, we then have a mixed bag, a subtle situation to deal with, making it all the more difficult to do forecasting. My broad framework is that the US economy, if left to its own entrepreneurial devices, would grow at the rate of about 7% a year, which means a doubling in output every 10 years. I foresee something like 2%. Uh, I, I, I take five points off that for all of the instability and the choking of entrepreneurship that the government imposes. Uh, now, I could be wrong, but so far, the article I published in early April, uh, which was called The Great Suppression, seems to have turned out to be right. That, uh, that while the Federal Reserve isn't, has indeed been doing all the things you mentioned, government has been doing all the things you mentioned, but uh, what really happened uh, in, uh, when, the, when the lockdowns were imposed was not a, a standard business cycle, uh, Austrian business cycle recession, it was a great suppression, a suppression of economic activity. And I quoted in that article uh, a uh, passage from Murray Rothbard's book on the Great Depression of the 1930s, in which Rothbard pointed out that there are some dust downturns and some busts that are not due to government intervention. They're due to the meddling of the king, the lockdowns of the king, the screw-ups of the king. Well, that's what we had this time. The king imposed lockdowns on economic activity. But once those lockdowns began to be lifted, I said, economic activity will resume. Now, we have all kinds of independent measures showing that economic activity has resumed from employment uh, to, uh, to the manufacturing sector, even to the service sector. So uh, the economy, just as I predicted, has begun to come alive. Uh, now, if the lockdowns, however, are reimposed severely, then, then it's possible for that revival of the economy to be, uh, to be uh, destroyed. But I believe that politically, now that Biden's in charge, uh, they're gonna find excuses for further lifting the lockdown. It's gonna be erratic, it's gonna be catch as catch count, but they will lift the lockdown. So the economy will revive and 
I, I foresee 2% growth going forward. The other part of the story is that, uh, is that the US government engages in all kinds of shenanigans that would normally punish uh, the dollar, normally punish a US economy, but, but, but foreigners abroad uh, find that the that US treasuries are still a safe haven, that, that the US economy leads a charmed life uh, because, uh, because foreigners are always comparing uh, what goes on in their economies with what goes on in the US economy. So uh, very disappointing 2% economic growth is what I foresee the next few years. I could be wrong, but I think that's the likely outcome. Uh, I guess, was there an additional point I wanted to make? Well, uh, the additional point I wanted to make is that I buy and have been for a number of months, been buying $1,000 worth of Bitcoin and $1,000 worth of gold every month. Uh, as, as a hedge in my own personal portfolio, because I think that the charmed life the U.S. economy has been, uh, has been leading is, is going to come to an end sooner or later. I think it's going to be later rather than sooner, but I do counsel everyone. Uh, from my standpoint, I don't have a strong opinion about Bitcoin versus gold, uh, and uh, so I buy them both. But I do counsel everyone to take precautions in that way, because I do see something fairly serious occurring probably in about 10 years. A downturn will probably occur sooner than that, but a major financial crisis, uh, given the, the likelihood of a lot of things coming together, uh, will easily happen in about 10 years. Yeah. And as we speak, I think Bitcoin's yeah. floating right around 16,000, which is like a two-year high. Yeah. Um, and gold's but it, it dipped down to below nineteen hundred, I think. But we're we're hanging around at two thousand dollar an ounce mark. Well, I, I do I do the I do the very very conservative sort of you know uh, dollar cost averaging. I buy I buy a thousand dollars of each every month. So that if it's mm -hmm. lower in price, I buy more of it. So that if it's higher in price, I buy less of it. Obviously, depending on different outcomes, I have profits of course showing and shown in both purchases at this point. But uh, and and of course, dollar cost averaging is only for the very conservative types, which I am. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I'm really. Uh, you gave me a lot of confidence saying that that's what you're doing because I've been yeah. doing the same thing with my savings. So now I feel uh -huh. <laughs> I feel vindicated a little bit. Um, I still yeah. own stocks. So I still own the stock market, and that's that's been doing pretty well. Okay. Yeah. Um. So since you don't mind shifting gears a little bit, but this is sure. still very relevant. Um, Any gears? Any gears? This is something that's been, um, you know, debated at nauseam for years now. Um, it even came up during the second presidential debate is the uh, possible mandate of a $15 an hour minimum wage. Um, this is something I've totally wholeheartedly been sold on the idea that no minimum wage is the answer. Um, Zero dollar. Um, I, I believe that one just because if there's someone who's living with a single mother in a, in a poor, impoverished neighborhood, I don't think there's any reason he can't go help a struggling small business bag groceries for three bucks an hour rather than the alternative of joining a gang to make money because they, they, they have no money. Um, I think yeah. it helps the business owner. Everyone wins. He learns a skill. He's going to get a raise. He's going to be invested in the company. They're going to want to keep him. Um, I think people that start at minimum wage, what's the, what's the percent? Like 90 some percent get a raise within the first six months. Um, so what's your, what would you say to, to people who want to, uh, mandate a $15 hour minimum wage. Uh, when I heard it during the debate, uh, Trump, 
handled it okay. He said, leave it to the states, which I guess if you run for president, it makes, stand, makes sense to take the middle ground. You can't advocate for no minimum wage um, and from the whole country. But when he said, uh, you know, Biden's talking about putting all these restrictions on restaurants with these plexiglasses uh, fixtures around each table and, uh, you know, limiting the traffic coming in. So I feel like Trump as a, as a businessman should have said, like, listen, you're talking about limiting their their traffic coming in. So you're, you're having less customers, but you want to increase their overhead, not only with all these uh, new startup costs to to make it covid safe but also raise all the overhead of their, their wages. Why don't you just take a pillow and just stifle the, the, the businesses and just and put them to, de- you know, kill them off anyways, before you make them do all this. It'd be almost impossible to survive if someone's going to have less traffic and double their overhead. Yes. Well, uh, with respect to your uh, general uh, conception of the minimum wage, I agree with it, but I would go a bit further. Uh, I would say, obviously there should be no, rules, no law whatsoever regulating what is paid to anyone. Uh, but, uh, you know, the joke is, well, what's what's the real minimum wage is zero. And of course, one of those jokes is that mean that's zero because then a lot of people whose productivity is not sufficient so that anybody can make a profit from paying them 15 bucks, they're going to get zero. <laughs> they won't have a job at all. Uh, but I would, my own quip is that really uh, probably uh, the, uh, the market wage is, is potentially for young people, it's less than zero because I would rather see young people not uh, going to junior high or high school or college but just getting jobs and apprenticing themselves uh, mm-hmm. as in the old days. And of course, uh, an internship or an apprenticeship is often a, uh, a, a, a negative wage. Sometimes you pay uh, the, uh, the, the employer to, to, uh, to educate you to, uh, in skills. And that's an investment in your future. And of course, to elaborate further on your point, in addition, uh, the the real uh, job training is learned on the job, and that's uh, that's how people invest in their human capital. And so, the first few jobs you get are really an investment. And uh, and if and if your folks can support you, or if you can make a couple of bucks out of it, you're investing in your future. Uh, you're, you're learning how to do a job. And uh, so, I mean, I, by the way, would do that for professional uh, people. There's no reason why people should have to go to high school or college or law school to become lawyers. They just apprentice themselves in a law in a, in a, uh, with a legal firm and they learn how to do it on the job. That would open up in vast numbers of employment opportunities for poor people who, who don't uh, have the wherewithal to attend uh, all the wasted uh, material that they're, that's imposed on them in junior high, high school, college, and law school. Mm-hmm. So that's what I would do, and I think it would be uh, benefit the poor uh, far more than it would benefit anybody else. Uh, getting to your specific point about what a $15 minimum wage would do, uh, I, uh, I I guess one saving grace, uh, my son Jim Epstein, who's a researcher at Reason, has uh, has has demonstrated this uh, in uh, some of his own work. Uh, the point that uh, that politicians actually don't have any great incentive to enforce the minimum wage. That uh, that that uh, it's it's been really a wink wink kind of legislation for many years, and uh, that while it is true that uh, that that the that the most established places like McDonald's and 
places that have real brands uh, do have to sort of obey the rules that they 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 can withstand the shock a bit more easily even though there's harm there but a lot of places are, are going to operate off the books and and the risk of getting caught is usually quite remote. And, and that, in fact, is one of the reasons why it's been difficult empirically to find employment effects from the minimum wage, because researchers are sort of working with false data. They, they think that the employment that they do see uh, uh, is uh, abiding by the minimum wage, but very possibly it isn't. And uh, then I think this is sort of a collusion with politicians who may not be as stupid as we think, uh, they will not. They will not employ a whole lot of people to enforce the rules of the minimum wage, and so a whole lot of people are going to operate off the books. And so that's my hope for it being evaded. Maybe that gets back to my sort of key theme about how uh, Austrians and free market people generally tend to us underestimate uh, the resiliency of the free market. Uh, that uh, that that. Uh, people will indeed uh, do that awful thing and to keep two sets of books, operate off the books, and of course, employ illegals, and uh, very few of them are going to get, get caught, so the risk is worth it. That's the reason why I'm a little less upset about the, the $15 uh, minimum wage. I should add one other point, I guess that's, that's often uh, overlooked. If you if you examine the data of the Bureau of Labor Statistics about what percentage of the workforce it uh, works under the minimum wage, uh, going back to the, to the late 1970s, you find that uh, it was over 10% and then it shrank to about two to 3% most recently, uh, approximately those are the valid numbers. Uh, the point is that, that the free market does tend to, uh, to, uh, to repeal the minimum wage. Fewer and fewer people, if the minimum wage stays about the same, then fewer and fewer people work uh, under the minimum wage, partly because of inflation, partly because of economic growth. Under economic growth, everybody's work is more valuable uh, than it used to be. And so uh, there's no, uh, the, the, the idea that, that, that the minimum wage had not been raised in a long time and that therefore we had to raise it further overlooked the point that fewer and fewer uh, people were working under minimum wage. And as you uh, uh, indicate, it's mainly young people who are badly in need, not so much of, of getting paid for their labor, they're barely in need of on-the-job training. And, and the long-term harm that, that the minimum wage does is that it denies them uh, that training. But I guess getting back to my striking my optimistic note, uh, it is a has been historically uh, a, a rule that's been honored in the breach that's been evaded. And that's my hope for why it's not going to have a hugely devastating effect on the labor markets. Okay. So <clears throat> I guess one thing I would ask, and we're kind of hopping around here, but well, of back to, you talked about the, the horizon for this financial calamity possibly being 10 years, maybe a little yeah. less out. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I don't want to assume your opinion, but I'm sure you think that there's some sort of recession coming short of that, like maybe in the next yeah. year or two. I mean, I would imagine. Well, would you agree with that? Um, I, I think I, I guess I have to say that I think a recession in a year or two is unlikely. Again, really? let me just, just try to say that you quoted Peter Schiff, you quoted David Stockman. Look it up. They forecast a recession every single year. 
Sure. I Every guess single the, year. What would you say about people who constantly say that? Um, one or two years out, I, though, I oh, don't yeah. think it's so like, I'll, I'll I, don't clarify. Think it's like, I think the resilience of the market is sufficient. So that's probably not going to happen in a year or two. Okay. So I guess the reason I would yeah. clarify. But I could be wrong. I could be wrong. We, well, I don't know if this streak is technically broken now, but aren't, didn't we have the longest business expansion in history? It was something like 10 plus years of GDP growth and not going into recession. So we were statistically due for some kind of correction. Is that well, correct no, I, until COVID? Uh, I can't buy this statistically due story. Uh, I, I, there's no, you know, the, the, you know, the idea, indeed, we, we did have, as you indicate properly, uh, we had... Uh, according to the official numbers, we had a 10-year expansion in the 1990s, and then we were going into we, we were in our 11th year, uh, uh, and and entering our 12th, I guess, approximately, uh, when uh, when the COVID crisis hit. But uh, but there's really no particular reason to believe that that meant that uh, the expansion had to come to an end. I should emphasize, of course, as I imagine is not news to you, that in a free market, there might be uh, economic growth will wax and wane. On a free market, I think we're going to average about 7%. Free market, we don't have recessions. We don't have busts. We don't have the boom-bust cycle. But uh, I certainly, uh, so therefore, just the very fact that we have recessions already makes me a pessimist compared to the real potential of the free market. But uh, certainly, I don't think that we were statistically due. I think that's too much of a, a metaphorical statement to make that okay. we were statistically due for a slowdown. I think that uh, the economic growth could, uh, could have easily persisted. I didn't see any particular, uh, I'll put a fine point on it. When, uh, when I looked at uh, these the, the usual suspects for a bust, uh, the usual suspects, one of which would be you know, an inflated stock market, and the other of which would have been an inflated housing market. Well, according to standard measures of price earnings ratios, the stock market uh, was frothy as in, in, in 2019, as uh, it often can be, but it was nowhere near inflated as it had been in the year 1999-2000, when the price earnings ratios really did show a bubble had formed. Uh, similar, the housing market, based upon two different kinds of measures that I was using, uh, price to rent ratio, price to inflation ratio, the housing market was also frothy, but not in bubble territory compared to 06 and 07. And therefore, I didn't see that those two bubbles were forming. And so I thought that uh, that that 2020 would be another year of economic growth. Uh, but I guess the only argument to make about statistical longevity is that uh, is that given the behavior of the Federal Reserve, then you do have bubbles forming and then bubbles do have to burst. So that's possible. But I didn't see that happening in 2020. And so I tend to take it one year at a time. So I guess what I would say is short of a recession, when you look at the kind of monetary expansion, like all of the money printing and the QE that the Fed has done since March, short of a recession, what do you see the consequences of that being? Like, obviously, something must be overvalued, probably bonds more than anything. Yes. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. For sure. So we have a bond bubble. We have a bond bubble. 
bubble. Thank you for mentioning that. I left that out of my, that out of my major <laughs> narrative. We do have a bond bubble. What is a bond bubble defined as? Well, obviously, interest rates by any reckoning. We don't have a, really a benchmark to compare them with. I mean, that's the point about Austrian business cycle theory. Uh, it, what happens is that the central bank drives interest rates to below the market rate. But we, all, we, we only have a, a, a vague idea. We can't measure exactly what the market rate is. So we don't know precisely what the disparity is between where interest rates are and what the market rate would be. And so, but we can, so we can only guess and theorize, but certainly given uh, where uh, the uh, central bank has driven interest rates right now, we know that they're definitely below the market rate. And of course, in the case of bonds, when interest rates are way too low, that means bond prices are way too high. So we have you know, about $20 trillion worth of a bond bubble. We have um, uh, bond prices that are way too high. Now, uh, will that bond bubble deflate violently so that it will bring down the economy or will the air be let out of it? Well, you know, we actually did have uh, a, uh, we, we've, we've had bond bubbles before. Uh, we, we had a bond bubble in the, in the 50s, it, it came down slowly. It's very possible that the bond bubble will come down slowly, partly because uh, bonds, U.S. Treasury bonds are still conceived of as a safe haven. Uh, and, uh, and because they are, uh, I don't believe that well, there will necessarily be a violent correction. And I think a violent correction is key to bringing the economy down. Uh, we, uh, the, part of the resiliency of the free market really is something that Austrians should understand quite well, which is that, uh, that, that, that the markets can adjust. Given time, the markets can adjust to a change. That's what, uh, that's what creative destruction brings about. You know, the, there's been basically destruction of the retail sector of the economy over the last you know, 20 years, done again by Amazon. The employment uh, uh, among the major department stores has, has plummeted. And of course, those major department stores are now collapsing uh, because of the further shock of, of COVID because Amazon is dominating even more. And so shocks can be absorbed. Indeed, as I say, we know as Austrians that, that, that creative destruction, innovative shocks are what the economy is all about. And so uh, shocks that the government imposes on the economy, if they happen slowly, uh, will not necessarily bring uh, an economic downturn. However, we also know that economic shocks from the government uniquely often do happen violently, and that's the reason why we have recessions. So again, getting back to your particular question, I don't, I, I don't necessarily see, foresee a recession uh, one or two or three years out uh, because it's very possible that the economy will muddle through uh, uh, those circumstances and that the, uh, the, 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 the bursting of the bond bubble will not be a burst. It will be a slow letting out of the air uh, and that uh, therefore we'll, still, we'll have the very, very uh, sluggish 2% growth that I perceive going, perceive going out two to three years. Okay, Mike. Did you wanna? Did you wanna uh, get a couple of your questions? In? Sure. Well, um, you you mentioned earlier uh, we were talking a little bit about gold uh, and how you're yeah. still invested in the stock market. Um, yeah. Given your your uh, different perspective that you have with Peter Schiff, 
Um, he's been a huge advocate for um, investing in gold mining stocks. Oh, yeah. um, he, he, he put out an episode a few months ago that said gold mining stocks are literally gold mines saying put yeah. your money there because they're, they're going to boom. Yeah. Are you in agreement with that? Do you think that's, that's something that's going to, if the dollar does, uh, you know, hit troublesome waters that gold mining stocks will, will boom? Yeah. Uh, well, if, if I'm in agreement with buying gold, which of course sure. I am because uh, I'm voting with my dollars, yeah. then uh, I can't be in disagreement with buying gold mining stocks. I, I know that, uh, I guess the argument uh, that Peter and others would make is that um, that gives you more leverage that uh, that means like a, a 10% increase in, in the price of gold could translate into like a 20% appreciation, just picking numbers out of the air to illustrate the point in uh, in the value of the gold mining stocks that you own. I guess that means there's possibly if it's more leverage, there's more downside involved. But then of course, if you're more confident of gold's trajectory over the next two, three years, then you would do that. In my case, again, because I'm doing the dollar cost averaging, that means that I don't have any particular uh, uh, outlook for where the price of gold is going to go in the next year, in the next two years, or indeed uh, where the price of Bitcoin is going to go. Uh, but uh, I do think that its trajectory over the next 10 years is definitely uh, 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 up. Uh, the, the uptrend is clear for the next 10 years. And so uh, that's a different sort of investment philosophy. And of course, Peter is in the business of selling different ideas. And so I wouldn't necessarily negate the idea of buying gold mining stocks. I mean, of course, there are also the, the creative guys who want to buy silver as well, which is called the poor man's precious metal. And all of those ideas are worth considering. Uh, I'm just less imaginative than those people. Uh, and then not just buying uh, a Bitcoin, but very possibly buying uh, other kinds of crypto. I mean, uh, Peter uh, Schiff participated in a debate on cryptocurrency, on, on uh, Bitcoin in particular, uh, with um, Eric Voorhees. Peter doesn't believe that uh, that Bitcoin has intrinsic value. And of course, we have to point out to Peter that nothing has intrinsic value, not even food, not even clothing or shelter, because uh, food has to have intrinsic value only if you think your life has value. Those, those people for whom life has no value don't think that food has any intrinsic value either. Nothing has intrinsic value, uh, an Austrian lesson that Peter should learn. Okay. Like I said, that's the answer to that question. Um, so I guess we can shift gears again. Um, sure. What are your, your thoughts looking forward to um, all the advocating people for uh, like all this democratic socialism type push we see in our economy? Um, obviously, the powers that be, the big banks, the big corporations, um, the, the crony capitalists, they they don't want somebody like Bernie Sanders who doesn't believe in billionaires being in charge. Yeah. What do you, what do you think the absolute uh, real threat is of this um, push with all the universities and all the kids uh, in my generation, Nick and I are an exception to be um, at our age and we're, we're outnumbered with people who believe in the Bernie Sanders message. Yeah. Um, wh what's going to happen in the future if these people get in control? Is there a possibility of seeing socialism in the United States? Well, I'm hopeful that we won't see it. I guess I latch upon uh, the point that I was a socialist in my 20s, and uh, I, uh, I was, you know, I saw the light. I was raised by a mother who was a card-carrying communist, and uh, so I, if I rose from that intellectual depravity, then others uh, who uh, didn't have my disadvantages in life might also do so. Uh, 
And uh, also, uh, I, I guess I gained some heart from the fact that, as you indicate, uh, the, the crony capitalists, the people who aren't necessarily our allies, uh, are also against Bernie. Bernie, as you know, used to be against millionaires and billionaires. But when Bernie became a millionaire, <laughs> he he, uh, he only singles out the billionaires now. The millionaires are OK. And so even he uh, uh, learned a thing or two. Uh, and uh, well, I, I, I think that uh, people do evolve. Uh, I'm relieved, as I imagine you are both, that uh, that uh, the Republicans are going to hold on to the Senate, and uh, and thereby stymie uh, the, uh, the the progressive agenda of the left wing of the Democratic Party, uh, and uh, also uh, I guess I take heart from the fact that uh, that the Republicans, who certainly did at least symbolize capitalism far more than the Democrats did, uh, gained seats in the in the uh, in the House of Representatives, indicating that. Uh, that that progressivism really wasn't a good bet for the Democratic Party. Uh, otherwise, uh, they uh, they would have gained uh, seats in the in the House and Senate because clearly uh, Biden, by and large, uh, was uh, has been communicating a, a progressive message. So, uh, I, and and I think that there's a lot that wax and wanes. I'm impressed by the research, and now, uh, unfortunately, I'm forgetting his name. Uh, the uh, the research of uh, a guy who polls uh, the American electorate and finds that really the extremes of the uh, of the two political parties are not really reflected in the opinions of the electorate uh, of the people themselves, and that we tend to get dis distorted in our views by just by following social media, uh, not recognizing that most people don't follow social media and that there's no particular uh, love of socialism in this country. And so uh, again, I, I latch upon all of those uh, uh, factors uh, to be hopeful that uh, we're not really headed toward socialism. Uh, I've been doing my part by debating socialists. Uh, I debated uh, Professor Richard Wolff, who's very prominent socialist, and that's gotten more than 1.7 million YouTube views. And uh, I'm scheduled to vote to uh, to debate another socialist, Ben Burgess, in oh, nice. Florida. And uh, hopefully that will be followed. I like to think that those among those 1.7 million views, some young people might have seen it. Uh, which, and uh, I uh, I believe that I was effective in exposing uh, the basic emptiness of socialism by arguing that uh, that if uh, if the socialists only want worker control of the means of production, then capitalism makes that quite possible. I think that comes also from being an Austrian and recognizing that, that capitalism is simply the right to property. It's not cost curves. It's not the firm. It's not anything in particular in terms of institutions. It's just a series of choices determined by the protection of property rights. And if workers want to own firms and run them, we already have that in the US to some degree. We see that abroad. Uh, if markets change in that direction, that workers own and run their own firms, that too is capitalism. Uh, capitalism is just pretty much the way people want to run things and workers, as I also pointed out, more than have the wherewithal to take over and run the means of production if that's what they 
want, but clearly most of them don't seem to want it. And that's why worker ownership is pretty marginal in this country. That's the main argument I've been making when I argue with people like Richard Wolff and like Ben Burgess, who think that we need a government of evil uh, for the workers to own the means of production. We certainly do not. Uh, you know, one, one third of all consumption is accounted for by the lower half of the population, nearly two thirds by the lower 80%. There are trillions of dollars in the hands of labor unions in terms of investment. They could run the means of production if they want to. And then of course they too would be capitalists. And so capitalism makes room for uh, those aspects of socialism that, that many who believe in socialism want. But of course, you and I as Austrians know that the old fashioned kind of socialism, the idea of the government, of the economy run being run by government's iron fist, that's a disaster. I guess it's very disheartening uh, indeed from your standpoint and mine uh, for us to have to point out the awful failures of socialism. Uh, the uh, uh, historically and 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 then to notice that people still persist in believing in it. The loss of awful failures, I should say, of conventional socialism. We should be able to point out to people just a simple uh, controlled experiments, East Germany versus West Germany, a predominantly capitalist economy in West Germany and a socialist economy in East Germany, similar culture, similar nationality. One of them was, an, was awful, the other was successful. Uh, North Korea versus South Korea, uh, that's of course a, a, a controlled experiment we have to this day, very grim. North Korea, an awful society. South Korea, fundamentally capitalist, far more successful. Uh, and then of course we have uh, Taiwan and Hong Kong versus most of China. And then we have China, uh, once it became capitalist and moved toward market liberalization in the late 1970s, that's when the living standards of the broad masses of people began to be raised. I mean, these empirical examples stare you in the face. And I hope that if you and I keep pointing them out, that people, young people, as they grow older, will begin to perceive those realities. Well, I hope. Um, what was your breakthrough moment when you said you were a socialist in your 20s? What, what flipped the switch to turn you to free market capitalism? Uh, well, uh, reading the Austrians, uh, reading, uh, I, I began by, uh, I was teaching economics and uh, I, I picked up a copy of Man, Economy and State mm -hmm. by uh, Murray Rothbard. And uh, I uh, only by reading him did I realize a simple insight that it's impossible to be a libertarian socialist, which is more or less what I called myself. Uh, uh, it's impossible to believe in free speech and press and to believe in socialism because as Rothbard pointed out, uh, the, the press, the labor, the meeting halls, all of those instruments of free speech are scarce resources and somebody has to allocate them. And when, when the government has a monopoly on the printing presses, uh, has a monopoly on the meeting halls, how can I operate my civil forum if I'm gonna rent from the government? I have to apply then to government committees uh, to get the word out. Uh, and But if they have a monopoly on it, then they are clearly gonna favor their own. They're clearly gonna place a chokehold on my right uh, to exercise free speech. And so uh, that's because, again, they could use the easy excuse. It's a scarce resource. We can't allow you to use it because we've got to allow others to use it. So you need free markets in order to allocate the scarce means of production whereby free speech and press 
are exercised. Uh, I then learned from, uh, from the Austrians, given the dynamics of the free market, that the, broad, the living standards of the broad masses of people naturally rise in a free market. The, 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 the way in which that, uh, those dynamics work are that you've got a lot of employers and you can choose among them. Employers are bidding for labor and if they're more profitable, then they'll bid up the wage. And if there's more prosperity, the wage will be bid up. There's a very good discussion of this in George Reisman. He's also an Austrian in George Reisman's book, on capitalism. It's only, again, I think when I began to read Ludwig von Mises, that he just wrote something that was just fairly simple, where he said, imagine an, uh, one business is underpaying workers in terms of, of their potential productivity. Well, the, the, the competitors are going, to, are going to profit by bidding, up, bidding those workers away. And so the bidding process in the free market uh, is, uh, is essential uh, to lifting the live, living standards of the broad masses of people. And of course, entrepreneurship and innovation is the only reason why living standards can rise in the first place. And then we, of course, we have all the empirical examples of how human beings, average people live so much better when you introduce capitalism and impoverishment results only when you introduce socialism. But understanding those dynamics uh, is something that I began to appreciate. And I guess it's important to be able to teach that to people, uh, I'll, I'll digress even a little bit more on that theme. Uh, I like the way George Reisman puts it, that the average person and the average progressive begins from two assumptions when he talks about what determines wages, worker need and employer greed. I like the fact that that rhymes. Worker need, well, most of us are in need of a job right away because uh, we, uh, you know, we don't have a whole lot of savings. And then there's employer greed. Well, the, the employers don't really want to pay any more than subsistence. They, they want to keep us alive so we can come to work. But do they really want to pay any more than just keeping us alive? So worker need and employer greed is such that workers will never earn more than subsistence. But uh, but but uh, but that those facts are true. There is worker need and there is employer greed. But other things are true as well. Uh, uh, Riesman likes to use an example, a little mental experiment. Imagine you're, mo you're moving to Manhattan and you own an automobile. You're moving to Manhattan, you own an automobile. And once you move to Manhattan, the automobile is a liability. It's gonna cost to, to, uh, to garage it. There's no room on the street to park it. So you need to get rid of it. You would pay somebody to take it off your hands. So you have need you have the need to get rid of it, just like a worker has the need uh, for a job. And others who are gonna buy that car have greed. They wanna pay as little as possible for that car. They indeed want, would rather that you subsidize them to take a car off your hands. But do you really have to sell that car at a loss? No, you look into the market, people are buying cars and you sell the car at a profit because there is a market for it. Similarly, an, a worker moves to New York or moves to an area and there are about eight or nine different employers to choose from. He has a need for a job, but there is a competitive marketplace out there. And, the, and, the, and, and, he, and, and, and if the wage is $20 an hour in, from one employer, 
and $25 an hour from another, then he'll go to the employer that's bidding $25 an hour. So the point is that employer greed and worker need do not determine the wage. The market does. The, the free market in almost all areas where there are a lot of different employers to choose from. We also, by the way, to digress further, when you argue with people who advocate for the minimum wage, they invent an idea. The idea they invent is that people of limited means, young people, are so clueless that they don't know that there's a market for their wage. They don't, they, they, they think that there's only one employer paying, uh, you know, $3 an hour and nobody else across the street paying $4 an hour. They invent this idea that poor people are stupid, you know, but of course they don't imagine that people of limited means, they meet each other, they talk about each other, each other, talk to each other about job opportunities here and job opportunities there. They might even look something up on the internet. They might hear about better paying jobs for their family. So the markets for labor work, even though there's employer need, uh, there's employee need, worker need, and employer greed. And the markets work even among people of limited means. And again, what's most crucial is that innovation brings prosperity. So my key, to answer your, the broad question, my key concerns having to do with freedom and also with being a bleeding heart about caring about the prosperity of the broad masses of people, those two issues were resolved completely by my understanding the mechanisms of the free market. Those are basically of course, the socialist concern, which I think is very nice, the socialist concern is with providing for the lower half of the population. And I think that's a worthy concern. I think that's important. I guess I inherited that bleeding heart from my socialist background. That, that fits perfectly with belief in the free market. And of course, the more liberal concern about the freedom to do what you want, to speak, your, to speak what you want, to, to publish what you want, uh, that's essential to the free market as, as well. And so that's what converted me to being an advocate of the free market and what wooed me again away from socialism. And I hope that other others who are uh, uh, in bed with socialism intellectually can understand those insights as well. Well, yeah, I'm never one for government mandates, but if we could mandate that Man, Economy, and State by Murray Rothbard was uh, had to be read by every high school student in the nation, I'd be all for it. Well, okay. <laughs> it might be a little maybe, dense for high schoolers. <laughs> no, I, I, have an, I have an introduction to a collection of essays by Rothbard uh, 55 essays, and I point out that Murray Rothbard changed my life with Man, Economy, and State. Probably some simpler books like, uh, um, uh, you know, Economics in, in One Lesson. Well, mm. maybe these days, of course, people listen to podcasts like yours. And so maybe they'll, maybe they'll, although I guess I sound a little bit too much like a professor and maybe young people can't understand it, but, but can't understand what I said uh, uh, because I didn't speak in very uh, simple terms, but uh, hopefully I did. Uh, again, you progressives, you believe in uh, worker need and employer greed. Uh, but apart from that, uh, I, uh, I, I do uh, think that everybody ultimately should read Man, Economy and State. You two guys should read it if you haven't already. Sure. I actually haven't gotten through it. That's, that's yeah. uh, you know, I'm a little ashamed to admit. But yeah. uh, Gene, before we close, I wanted to sure. get your thoughts. I mean, obviously, economics is your area of expertise. And, you know, I haven't heard you uh, really delve outside of that too much. Mm -hmm. But one thing I wanted to tangentially touch on and ask you about is just where you see, we're talking about, okay, maybe there's this big collapse coming eventually when the US dollar just tanks. 
But short of that, when you see all of the the kind of left wing uh, grassroots populist ideas gaining traction, let's say with Bernie Sanders and AOC and all these these other bleeding heart progressives, and they see things like the standard of living. I mean, I, and materially, we're richer. We have cheap consumer goods from China. But as somebody my age, it's like I know that at 26, somebody my age, it's a lot more daunting to do things like buy a house, start a family, get out of debt. And we do see this, this, you know, these effects from the Federal Reserve and all this policy of, and inflation making it a lot harder to really get ahead in life for a lot of people. You see, I think it's credit card debt, student debt, uh, auto loan debt. All of these things are at all time highs. And it is tougher while we're richer materially. It's a lot tougher for young people to get ahead. And what I worry about is that they have their guns pointed in the wrong direction. Instead of looking at the banking system and, and tax policy and all of these things that make it hard for, for somebody to, uh, or make it hard for the population's standard of living to really rise, they're looking at the people like Jeff Bezos and the Walton family, and they have their cannons pointed in the wrong direction. Are you optimistic or pessimistic that the message, the truth can actually get out there and beat these ideas. You know, they say the, you know, what is it? The truth or a lie can get around the world twice before the sho- the truth gets its shoes on. I mean, do you think, do you think it's possible just on a, on a, a real societal level right now that our ideas can actually win? Well, I guess, uh, you know, uh, speaking of as somebody who's going to be 76 next week, um, I, uh, I've been around the block with, uh, uh, a lot of these ideas, I've seen the cycles uh, of, of ups and downs in attitudes. And uh, I do think that the ultimate uh, record of freer markets and the insights of freer markets uh, have an edge. And uh, while I too have been disappointed in what's been happening, uh, I do see potential silver linings. And so I, I can't, I, I, I do uh, uh, feel that, uh, that the optimistic uh, leaning that I've had all my life has been vindicated uh, ever since I started thinking about these things 55 years ago. And so it's difficult for me to, to abandon my optimistic leaning today. So that's my limitation, and uh, and 30 years from now, or 40, 50 years from now, when you're my age, uh, you'll have to see whether I turn out to be right. <laughs> well, Jeannie, we're running a little long here, but I really appreciate your time. Sure. Um, yeah. If you have any plugs or tell people where they can find you, feel free to go ahead with that now. Well, uh, yeah, I guess the only uh, place, uh, just to keep it brief, would be Gene. Soho Forum is my Twitter handle. I do and I do some Twitters almost every day and lead things to people, uh, lead uh, people to things, I should say. So at Gene Soho Forum uh, is a good place to go where I make announcements. That's at Gene Soho Forum is my Twitter handle. So follow me there. Awesome. Gene Epstein, thank you so much and have a wonderful birthday. Sure. Thanks very much. Thanks, Gene. Happy birthday. Sure. Bye-bye. Yeah. <laughs>